0: This morning I'm going to bring you a message that I hope you'll find to be a blessing to you, but you may also find it to be a bit of a a 22-minute rabbit trail. So I'm going to ask you to be patient and walk along this path with me, because it really is a method of looking at, a different way of looking at the concept of thankfulness. So with that in mind, would you please stand for our reading this morning, our reading of God's Word. We do this because we believe this is Holy Scripture. We'll be turning... To the book of Isaiah, in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 to 8. Here now is the word of the Lord. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills, straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together The Lord has spoken. A voice said, shout. I asked, what should I shout? Shout that the people are like grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of God stands forever. Thank you and please be seated. The last six weeks, we focused on messages from the parables of Jesus. Well, we're going to begin today with another parable, though it is actually not one of Jesus' parables. It's written in the tradition, the style of Jesus' parables. It's actually a teaching parable I'm borrowing from a longtime pastor in the Minneapolis area named John Piper. Here is his parable. Many years before there were any cars or modern machines, in a time... When horses and carriages were common on dirt roads, there was a town blacksmith shop, and in that shop was a large, heavy, well-worn anvil. One day, a young boy who had never left the family farm before, he came to town with his father for the very first time. As he walked down the unpaved main street, he heard a loud noise clanging away, and he said to his father, what is that? Well, his father said, come, I'll show you. So he took his son to the door of the blacksmith's shop, and there the boy saw a very strong man lifting a big heavy hammer with a long handle and a large head on it. He lifted that hammer high in the air as if to chop down a tree, and then it crashed down on a glowing piece of metal on top of the anvil. He hit it so hard it made the boy wince with every swing. His father explained to him that The man was a blacksmith who made all kinds of metal pieces for wagons and carriages, plows and tools, and of course, horseshoes. But the little boy was fixated on only one thing, that long, heavy hammer and that great metal anvil. They met each other with such force, he thought this anvil could surely not last very long. At one point, the blacksmith paused for a moment just to catch his breath, and he sees the boy standing in the doorway. The boy points at the anvil and he says, aren't you going to break that thing? But the blacksmith just smiled and he said, this anvil has been here many, many years and it has survived a thousand hammers. Well, here's the application of Dr. Piper's parable. In every generation, the philosophical equivalent of a new huge heavy hammer is used against the truth of God's word. People lift these hammers and they figuratively pound on the scriptures. They see this and they say, surely the Bible is going to be crushed by this new way of thinking. But others who know their history better will respond by saying, the Bible was forged in the furnace of God's truth and has worn out many hammers. So let's now look back at the passage we just read from Isaiah 40, and we're going to focus on verse 8, where Isaiah writes, the grass withers, the flower fades but the word of God stands forever. In the New Testament, Matthew 24, 35, Jesus is quoted as saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So we should ask ourselves, why is this? Why is this the case? Why does the Bible survive generation to generation and continues to be read and taught in millions of lives by millions and millions of people? Well, I think the answer comes in at least two different categories. First, it's God Himself that endures from generation to generation. Uh, the Bible openly says that He is the Alpha and the Omega, those are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He alone is the beginning and the end. No other God, lowercase g, can compare to the one true God, capital G, of all creation. But secondly, the Bible is the divinely inspired, inerrant word of God. So these two reasons are foundational doctrines that God has given us his word through the hands of human authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And his word in its original manuscripts is perfect and complete. And God has preserved his word through the ages, across the passage of time, through the process of translation, even through the cultural differences from our modern Western civilization lens, as opposed to the ancient Near Eastern context. Through all of these things, God himself has seen to it that his word is preserved for us to know of his law as well as his grace. In the Old Testament, again, Psalm 90, verse 1 to 2. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting thou art god in the new testament hebrews 13:8 jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever so the reason the bible's worn out a thousand new arguments against it is because it is the very word of god and it is god himself who endures from everlasting to everlasting and because the focal point of the bible it points to and then tells of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I point this out to us because eventually all of us come to realize we need to anchor our life on something that lasts and something that doesn't change with the passage of time. I'll give you an example. I'm not known as a particularly handy or skilled craftsman, but I've had to learn how to do basic things around the house. And on my workbench at the house in Gaylord, there's a a vice there, and it's about 100 years old. It was my grandfather's, and he got it from his father. It's large, heavy, it's strong, it's outlasted all the modern modern devices. There's probably Wi-Fi compatible vices now (laughs) that you can buy. And as much of a techie as I am, I don't want a new one because I know that that one is reliable. When we point out the durable nature of God's word, we do so in contrast to the ever-changing philosophies of our day. And most of these philosophies leave out Jesus Christ. They overlook the effects of sin. They remove our need for a savior. They have a strong tendency to reduce the healing power of repentance. And more eternally and more significantly, they deny the reality of hell, and they mislead people about the hope of heaven. They try to suggest everybody is eventually accepted into the Lord's presence. I don't see that in Scripture. These modern philosophies put themselves forward with great force, much like the hammer used by the blacksmith. And the ideas usually start with a new excitement. They seek to bring a new sense of hope to people. But they rarely focus on the reason why we need hope. They rarely focus on our fallenness. They tend to blame all of our difficulties in this world on human prejudices and on the misuse of Christianity. And you know what? Any of those theories may be well-intended, and they may contain elements in which they accurately point out problems, But their solutions are totally secular, without the power of God. And they tend to last for perhaps a decade until the next one comes along. But in the end, most of them are just the same thing being re-envisioned. They tend to be short-term fads. The excitement with these new philosophies fades, and people move on to something else. And in the wake of that, they all wrestle with the same thing. They wrestle with disillusionment. Because there is no fulfilled life, there's no fountain of youth, there's no assurances of death. And at the end, millions of people are left asking the same question. They ask, Is there more a more durable hope I can build my life on? They wrestle with the real issues: sin, the need for a redeemer, the need for repentance, the importance of faith, the value of forgiveness the reality of death, and the matter of our place in eternity. These are the things that they're still left unanswered with every new philosophy that comes along. Where can we find the answers to those questions? Well, I would say that the answer brings us back to the parable that Dr. Piper shared this morning. And that parable is that there is an unchanging solid anvil No one is God's word. It's outlived all the fads and broken a thousand hammers of criticism. Its message deals with the big things that don't change from generation to generation. Our problem, just as people, even as Christian believers, our problem is that we know Bible stories. We've been taught them over and over again, but very often what we don't know is the story of the Bible. You might say, well, what is that story of the Bible? Well, it has to do with four unavoidable realities. And I'm going to tell you about each one of them. The first one, the story of the Bible speaks of creation. In the very first verse of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He is a personal, infinite, eternal, just, loving, holy God, who made this universe and everything in it. And sometimes people wonder, why did he do that? Well, I would suggest to you he did so to reflect his glory, to reflect his sense of justice and mercy. He has no beginning and end. He's not dependent on anything. Scripture says that his very name is I Am. So this all-knowing, all-present, all-loving, all-wise, eternal God made you and made me to know him and to enjoy him. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. So the first element of the story of the Bible is God himself, who made us to enjoy and display his glory, because he is the creator of creation itself. The next aspect of the story of the Bible it begins in Genesis chapter 3, the fall. If the purpose of our existence is to know, enjoy, and reflect the glory of God, the reality of sin reflects our failure to do so. The Apostle Paul said in the letter to the Romans, famous passage, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there aren't any exceptions to that. Every one of us, me too. Sin is the barrier to our relationship with God. And yes, it's true, it hurts other people. We see evidences of that all over. But the main reason it's such a problem is because God is a holy God and he's very protective of his holiness. He's the giver of sunlight. He's the creator of all the stars and the planets. He's the sustainer of every breath you or I will ever take. He's the ultimate judge of the living and the dead. And that's why our neglect of what God has said is such a great evil. On that matter, all of us would stand guilty as charged. Which brings us to the third aspect of the story of the Bible. Redemption. And it points us to the central character of all history. Jesus Christ. i ask you to consider John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This word is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is eternal without beginning and end. Theologians word it this way, there has never been a time when the Son has not been with the Father. Jesus is not a created being, he always was. And yet, he took on human form 2,000 years ago. We'll be focusing on that starting the first Sunday in December. Through a four week process that historically is known as Advent. But why did he do that? Why did Jesus take on human form? Well, I think the best answer from the judgment of scholars who have studied this for years is that without taking on human form, he couldn't die. And that's what he came to the earth to do. He came to die on that cross in our place as a substitute, as a living sacrifice because he came to pay the debt you and I could never pay. Now, a number of years ago, the idea was put forth by a theologian who said that that doctrine is called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He said that doctrine should be rejected, and here was his reason. He said, because it means that Jesus, excuse me, that God is guilty of divine child abuse. Well, praise God that not very many people went along with the idea But I can tell you that, reliably, that teaching will reform itself and come back in another way at some point. Because I think that people get very uninformed, if not downright naive, about the depth of sin and why God sent his only begotten son. He sent Jesus to go to the cross because it was the only way to satisfy God's sense of holiness and his sense of mercy. Uh, Mark 10.45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came, not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to rescue sinners from spending eternity separated from him. In a real place, not just a metaphorical image of the disappointment and sadness, but an actual place in which the loss of any hope of any kind is a reality. And the people who are there know that it is forever and ever. That's the ultimate description of hopelessness. But in contrast, there is great hope. Great hope for sinners like me, like you. And that hope is the centerpiece of the Christian faith that God sent his only begotten son to be a substitute for all who place their faith and trust in him. Because Jesus lived a perfect life He died a totally undeserved but fully obedient death by crucifixion. And therefore, to all who believe, we are saved because our sin is laid on him. His perfections are credited to us. That's called the doctrine of imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 refers to it when it says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I would argue this is the centerpiece and the heart of Christianity. It is the deepest need of every human being. We need a Redeemer, and that Redeemer is Jesus Christ. That brings us to the last part of the story of the Bible, which is restoration. Jesus is coming again. The Bible quotes what Jesus said just before he ascended back to be with his heavenly father. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. If this were not so, I would have told you. I go now to prepare a place for you, and if I do this, I will come again and receive you unto myself, and you will be with me forever. When that day comes, all things are made new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to live forever and ever in his presence, in an existence that is free from sin. There is no more death at that point. There is no more sickness, no more war, no more strife. No more politics. No more 24-hour cable news channels. But there will be the magnificent of spending all eternity in the presence of our holy, redeeming Lord and Savior. Now you might say, well, Jim, that's very uplifting. That's wonderful news. What does this have to do with Thanksgiving? Well, it should make us ask the question, on this Thanksgiving holiday, what are we truly thankful for? I mean, I think, yes, we should be thankful for your family and for your home and for the blessings of this life, of course. But should we be even more thankful for the reality, the reality that God's word is still with us and has outlasted a thousand hammers throughout history? Is that not a cause for great thankfulness? And so as we come to this uniquely American holiday, Let's remember that our thanks is not just for our material blessings. It isn't just for our families, and it's not just for our homes, though it certainly should be. It's not just for our beloved pets. You know what an animal lover I am. It's not just being thankful for our local churches. Don't forget to be thankful for First Union Church and for all the churches in northern Michigan that are true to God's word. Our thankfulness includes the things of this life, but it should not be limited to those things of this life. In the end, our thankfulness is rooted in the reality. God has preserved his word and that we can read it and study it and learn it. And through that process, we can know our creator. We can know our savior. And we can also know he has provided the way, not just a way, but the way for us to avoid the fate that we would all face without him. The story of the Bible is God's plan to restore his creation. From the redeeming of Adam and Eve to the day when Jesus eventually returns. Coming in the clouds and every eye shall see him. That will be a great day of Thanksgiving. And so this Thursday, yes, enjoy Thanksgiving Day with your families. Enjoy a wonderful meal together. Enjoy watching the Lions play, especially this year's Detroit Lions. And all you Packer backers, you should enjoy that game too. It's part of our American tradition. These are good things, but most of all, give thanks for the blessing that God's word is an anvil that has survived a thousand hammers because, like God himself, it endures for all time. And for that reason, the greatest Thanksgiving ever is yet to come because it will be held in the glorious presence of the Lord And we will be with him, indeed, from everlasting to everlasting. And to that, all God's people said, Amen. Yeah, good job. Will you please pray with me? Lord, help us to keep our hearts and our minds and our eyes on you and on the blessing that you sent your only begotten Son to pay the price we could never pay. Thank you for preserving your word Thank you for your Holy Spirit who calls us to believe. And we just pray, Lord, for, for those who have yet to hear the good news of the gospel, that you will open their ears to hear. For those who have heard and not received, you will open their hearts to receive. For those who have believed but are wrestling and struggling, that you will draw them close to you so they'll know that you love them and that you'll be with all of us, that we will be Christ-like in our interaction with one another and with those who we work with, our family members and our neighbors, that your light will shine through us to your glory and to your honor. And we ask this in your name. Amen.